If you're just tuning in, I suggest you go back and start listening from chapter one. Before we start, a content warning. This episode contains graphic accounts of gun violence as well as domestic and sexual violence. The rest of the testimony for what went on that night was so muddled. It was hard to make a definitive picture. The jury was obviously the least informed group in that courtroom. This is episode nine of Panic Button, Manipulating the Truth. I'm Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. By the time April Wilkins takes the stand in her own defense on April 16, 1999, the jury had sat through two full weeks of trial, including one week of voir dire, or jury selection, and one week of the state's case in chief. The jury was no doubt tired. This is one of the tougher aspects of the manner in which cases are prosecuted in both criminal and civil courts. The plaintiff, here the state of Oklahoma, gets to go first in every respect. They're first to speak to the jury, first to present their case, and they even get to go first and last in closing arguments. Arguably, this provides a disadvantage to the defendant in some respects because they are second to persuade the jury. But it's hard to make sense out of doing it any other way because technically the defense doesn't have to present anything and they could still win in a criminal case. That's because the burden of proof is on the state to present enough evidence to prove every element of their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Plus, a defendant needs to be able to poke holes in the state's case, and it would be impossible to poke holes if the defense presented their case first. But any way you slice it, the defendant is going to be second, which means the state gets the first crack at the art of persuasion with the jury. So by the time Chris Lyons gets up to present his case, he's already fighting an uphill battle at persuasion. So, Colleen, we have to start with defense's opening statement. And um, Chris Lyons actually makes a strategic choice to reserve his opening statement until he presents his case. And personally, I think that is a huge strategic misstep. So for all that Colleen just talked about, about the state goes first, state has the benefit of both primacy and recency. Um, the state makes their opening statement, which is the second time that anyone gets to speak directly to the jury. And the defense would normally follow immediately before the state begins to call witnesses and present evidence. But defendants can reserve their opening statement and make it when they get up to present their case in chief. And that is what Chris Lyons does here. So that means the state talks to the jury, presents their witnesses and evidence and rests before Lyons ever has another shot at talking to the jury. And I guess like sometimes that might make sense, but while reading these transcripts, it just doesn't make sense to me in this case. So listen, if you've been following us for a bit at this point, you can probably tell that I am not someone who would vote for Tim Harris to hold any elected office. But dude, that dude, regardless, whatever, I wouldn't vote for him, but he is a skilled trial attorney from voir dire to opening to case in chief to cross-examination. So I think for me though, like to just let Tim go go on without getting up to say, look, he's going to show you X, Y, and Z, but don't buy that shit because I also have A, B, and C for you to consider and retort. So like the jury is just soaking up the Tim Harris show for an entire week before ever hearing from the defense again. And so I guess in my opinion, to sum it up, I think Lyons needs to plant seeds of doubt right out of the gate on this one. And he didn't do that. So anyway, that's the thing. That's the first thing I think goes wrong with defense's case. I don't know. Colleen, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, we get to hear from him on objections, but of course, no one likes it when people object because they feel like the jury feels like it's interrupting the flow of hearing the information. 
Um, so they, so I bet there are a million different defense attorneys that would have a million different opinions about this choice to reserve your opening. I also tend to agree that, especially with someone as pointed and skilled at, at storytelling um, as Tim is, that to let his narrative stand for such a long time without any rebuttal is a really big risk. And to to hope and pray that the jury is going to remember those points that you're going to have to rebut later, a week later, is just a pipe dream. They don't remember what he was saying that made them feel so convinced that this person is guilty, but they remember that they feel convinced that this person is guilty. And so when you're trying to call them back to things, it's just going to be like, what is he talking about? Yeah. Um, and it's going to cause them to be like, this is, it just feels very disjointed. And in a story like this that already is incredibly disjointed and everyone's done a horrible job of telling from a narrative perspective. Yeah, it's a it's a big risk for me. I don't think it was like a win or loss choice, but I think it was the beginning of a downhill trek. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So then April takes the stand, right? So April testifies in her own defense for three entire days. Uh, that means that she waived her right to remain silent, which is something that we all should hold dear. It is a constitutional right, the Fifth Amendment, to not incriminate yourself. Um, but a lot of juries and people who are involved in criminal cases say that it's very indicative of um, how a defendant feels about their case and about their innocence, whether or not they're willing to testify. Juries are not allowed to hold that against a defendant if they don't testify, but a lot of juries do feel like it sheds additional light and something that they always say is they want to hear um, from the first person perspective of the person what happened. So I think it's a really good decision that they had her go up and testify. It's also incredibly rare for that to happen. So it's almost unheard of in a criminal trial, but I think it just speaks to how sincerely April believed this, this is self-defense um, and how after everything that had happened to her, she still thought that she was going to be able to get justice from just telling everybody what happened. There's a huge risk in doing this because it opens you up to cross-examination from the opposing side. Um, a prosecutor's dream is to, pro is to cross-examine a defendant on the stand. And almost any inconsistent thing you say you will be quizzed about and it will be used to show that you are not being honest. And the thing about cross-examination too is that they can ask leading questions yep. and they can limit your answer, right? So I can say, Leslie, did you walk the dog today at 9 a.m.? I, if I was on direct, I would have to say, Leslie, what did you do this morning? And wait for you to get to the part that I want you to get to. But on cross, it's like, did you walk the dog at 9 a.m. or 9.30? And the only thing you can say back to me is it was at 9 a.m. Yeah, yeah. And it, even taking it even a step further. Colleen, isn't it true that you were walking the dog at 10 a.m.? Isn't it true that Mrs. McGarry saw you walking the dog at 10.30 a.m. when you told everybody at your house that you were leaving at night? That where were you from 9 to 10.30? <laughs> objection, 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 compound. You know what I mean? But yes, right. it's, it's like, it's this idea. A leading question is a question that suggests, an, suggests its own answer. And, the, and you can't do that on direct, but boy, do you get to do it on cross. And Tim Harris is very effective with the leading questions. And so... 
a lot of attorneys are very effective at getting their theory of the case in through their questions of cross-examination. So whether whether or not you're even answering or answering the way that they want you to, you are just by the nature of the question playing into their narrative of what happened. And you're not allowed to be like, no, sir, that's incorrect. Actually, it was a, they'll just cut, cut you off. So April's testimony is wired almost from the beginning. Uh, her testimony is pretty jumpy. It's out of order. She's crying a lot. And like, <sighs> Sorry to say this, but like, yes, I do want someone to be emoting from the stand. I want to see genuine emotions and I want to see who they really are. That's the whole point of putting her up there is to humanize her. But she's crying in a way that's not um, people aren't able to hear her and they're not able to um, understand what she's saying. And that's a problem because it's like this really high moment of tension. Everybody wants to hear what she's saying. And it's like, it keeps falling flat over and over again. And you can't, and nobody seems to be able to understand. And then it's almost like people just like disengage because it's like so frustrating. There are numerous critical moments when her story should be resonating with the 12 people sitting in the box, but instead the court is interrupting her to try to get her to say the thing again or saying he can't understand her or that jurors are raising their hands and saying they can't hear her. Um, there's problems with the mic and she's never close enough. And every time it happens, you can just hear like everybody in the room kind of deflate. Uh, it kneecaps whatever point that April was trying to make. And anyway, since we've talked a lot about April as a fast talker, and then when you read her testimony, it almost becomes incoherent at points. So she really needed to be prepared to discuss the atrocities specifically that she had suffered, especially since um, Lions and the defense team have gone to through a lot of trouble to get battered women's syndrome admitted and, and they're going to get to bring in a lot of this evidence of what happens to her before the shooting. The two and a half years of incidents that happened to her, they're able to introduce that and you don't want to waste that. Like you want, you want people to understand exactly what happened to her and I just don't feel like they really do or they really did. She needed to feel supported and to understand what to focus on, not to be coached. And I want, this is a really important point. You're not telling somebody what to say. You're not telling them what their story is and you're not telling them how the events unfolded. Their story is their story no matter what, but they need to understand these are the ways that I need it to come out because there are elements that we're trying to refute legally. And if you don't say, if you don't say in a self-defense case, I felt like I was going to die and I had no other choice, then it's almost like, why did you testify at all in the first place? because that's the whole point of getting you on the stand to say that, to get to your state of mind. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a critical thing for everybody listening to understand that when we're talking about witness preparation, we're not talking about coaching. We're talking about helping your client or your witness to understand, Here's, here are the legal elements of what I have to prove for you or what I have to disprove for you. And here are the pieces of your case that do that. And here's why I want you to focus on these pieces that you've already told me have happened to you. And I know that you want to talk about the mean looks. I know that you want to talk about, um, you know, any number of things, any number of details. And you might think those are important, but legally speaking, those aren't, right? So that's when we say witness preparation, we want to be very clear. We're not talking about coaching or delivering testimony you know, like you're a puppet, but it's to help them understand what's legally important so that they can focus on the right things in front of the jury. So anyway, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying that like, 
April, such fast talker. We talked about that quite a bit when we did the um, state's case. But I, I really like that about April. I mean, people have used that against her all throughout this process. But she's going to give you every single detail she can remember, even on things that are like not related to this case. Um, you know, one of the things when we met with her was uh, her just like, you know, shooting the breeze, her telling us about these 5Ks that she had organized for her fellow inmates and going into great detail about the certificates that she was having made for them. Like, just this gives you kind of a window into her personality. Like, even though I talked to her today and we talked about, you know, every single one of the details in this case is important. And it's like, this is voluminous. Voluminous. And there's no possible way every detail can carry the same weight of importance but like for her it does and if you don't discuss there are levels of importance yeah and there are levels of relevance and these are the levels that i need you to focus on like above five if it's a scale of one to ten um then you'll never get through it and people will people will be sitting in the box and wondering why am i hearing about this winery that you went to in Italy with this woman that was your high school friend. It's just like, people are not gonna do the cognitive labor of putting the pieces together. You have to do that for them. Right, right. And I think that, like we've talked about this, so many bonkers fucking things happen in this case that that's the job of the attorney is to slice through that chaos and present a coherent picture. Who are the players, what they did, how it contributes to the defense of self-defense and battered women's syndrome. And I mean, in order to do that, April needed to understand how to prove her defense and where to focus her testimony. And it's just, it's it's not happening when you read this cross, the, the, the direct and the cross. Right. And the fact that, and I've done this too, like when you're questioning someone, it's like, you forgot to, you forgot to ask about something that you really wanted to ask about. And it's out of order now. And so it's like, okay, well, I have to go back. Uh, actually, going back to that thing you were testifying about like 45 minutes ago, um, can you tell me about this thing about that? And it's a mistake, but it's like, it's better to get it than to not get it and the moment's over. But what is, ends up happening is like the story just gets so out of order. And like we talked about in the State's Case episode, the importance of one detail getting placed on the wrong date causes this snowball effect of her getting called psychotic and homicidal. Yeah. I think it's a super good point. And I think for the law students out there who might be like, why the fuck am I having to outline an entire class? This is why, because when you prep for direct or for cross in a case of this importance of any case, I mean, every case you're doing a car wreck, do this outline the testimony that you're trying to elicit. So, you know, you don't have to outline every question, but you need to know the buckets of topics and the major themes that you're trying to pull out so that you're not bebopping all around and having to go back and and you're not presenting a coherent or or clear picture. There's so many times you can tell that she's not answering what he wants her to answer, right? And as, as an attorney who's had that happen, it's super frustrating to be talking to the person on the stand and it's like, we just talked about this and I just told you we were gonna talk about this and this is what I needed to hear from you. And then you blanked or forgot or got stressed out once you were up there and you didn't say the thing. And so you can almost feel him being like, like looking at her like, this isn't what I want you to be saying right now, but this is what you're saying. And then he just sort of like moves on. And he doesn't have an artful way of, of sort of like jogging her memory or reminding her like, this is what I need from this. 
And it ends up just falling flat like so many times. And here's Juror 1 talking about that. And telling her story in a straightforward manner would have helped considerably too. Frankly, she also needed a female presence at the defense table. So we talked about this in episode five about the jury selection process. She needed someone by her side who she could trust and confide in. Attorney Lynn Worley, remember her from episode four? She's the one who worked with Damon Cantrell, April's initial public defender, to get Linda Driscoll in to give April some counseling after the incident. Lynn actually offered to be that person sitting at the table, but as we understand it, that offer was rejected by April's defense team. April really needed a reminder that this was going to be one of the hardest things she would ever have to do, and she needed to learn techniques to calm her down when her PTSD was triggering. She didn't have any of that, and so to use April's own words, she comes off as a basket case and it really hurts her credibility. We've already told you most of what April testified to in April in episodes one through three. The most frustrating thing about reading the testimony is that all the elements are there, but you can feel the anxiety and the trauma jumping off the page. And unless you know the case in and out like we do, it's very, very hard to track her and what she's trying to convey. Here's juror number one again. And there wasn't enough compelling evidence that she was really defending herself. I mean, the stuff that I heard in your podcast was so much more than we knew. We obviously had some inclination that an incoherent narrative didn't come through to the jury, but to hear this juror admit that to us was pretty stunning. Yeah, no, I mean, it really, it tracks with the chaotic vibes in the transcripts. And the jury couldn't hear her most of the time, like we've talked about. So, of course, they could not follow what was happening. And there's actually a point in the transcripts where the court itself interrupts Chris Lyons on direct and asks him, wait, we're at what point in time now? And for me, that's like massive, massive red flag for an attorney to be doing a direct examination. And the court interrupts you to be like, I'm not tracking you. Uh, What's the jury doing? Because the court's the judge is getting paid. This is his job. He's here every day. Get, collecting a paycheck to do this. The jury is absolutely not. So like Colleen said, we've already t- told you the story of April, right? The things that she's testified to. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on the direct, but there's some kind of bonkers stuff we got to talk about during cross. And because at the end of it, I think April is sort of reduced to ash a little bit. And um, Co- Colleen initially was talking about this, that the decision to testify in your own defense is a big, big risk because of cross-examination. And look, Tim Harris, like he's good, he's great, whatever, he's a a talented attorney, but he's also a certain type of attorney. Let's say, um, you know, maybe he's middle-aged, maybe he's white, maybe um, he's been in the game a while. A lot of them take this perspective of like, the nastiest motherfucker in the room is the best attorney. And I will tell you right now, in my experience, because I have dealt with this, that's not the case. And so, but like, I think Tim Harris really is like tracking this stereotype on cross-examination. And here's that juror again. I didn't like Tim Harris. I didn't like his demeanor in the courtroom. He was a bully. So the reason this works in a criminal tri- in a criminal trial like this is that he draws April into confrontations, which is 
a strategic tactic on his part. He wants that confrontation. And these little tit-for-tats that he draws her into do not endear her to the jury at all. And there's a back and forth that happens where April, um, Tim is trying to get April to admit that she was prescribed lithium at Parkside. And April is like having this response to him, you know, that I think is a very natural response for anybody who's not familiar with how attorneys can be on cross-examination. And it's just this like uh, defensive response where she's refusing to say yes to the question, right? Because if she had just said yes, when he, the first time he asks her, weren't you prescribed lithium at, at Parkside? Yes. Then the line of questioning is over. But she doesn't do that. Um, she keeps answering with not initially. And there's this stupid back and forth that never should have happened. But the tit for tat, it goes on long enough that the court finally has to step in and direct her to answer the question, which sucks. That sucks. You never want the court admonishing uh, anybody that's on your team, but especially not your client. Again, preparation not only for the direct, but really preparation for cross is key in any case, but particularly if you're going to testify in your own defense in a first degree murder trial. Yes, exactly. Right after the lithium exchange is another exchange that the state latches onto hard. And just quickly, like we were talking about, there's no acceptable limit of behavior for her. Like if she argues with him, then she's combative and see She's one of those crazy women. And if she accepts it, then she's acquiescing too quickly and she loses the factual narrative in her defense for her life. So what you're asking her to do is walk an impossible line of don't argue with him, but don't let him get away with anything. She actually walks it pretty artfully most of the time, which is kind of impressive. Um, Because nobody would want to go toe-to-toe with that bro, like, in this situation. Especially because the court, in a lot of situations in this trial, and I don't know if it was always like this, but the court tends to kind of also acquiesce to his, like, bullying nature a lot of the time. I know, I know. That was the other stunning thing about reading these transcripts. And I don't mean to interrupt, but let's get back to it. But, like, the, the court, Tim Harris will talk over the court. I would never do that. I would, it would be very rare for me to do that, but he does it so much in this case. Anytime he loses an objection, he argues about it every time. And he pushes back every time. Every time he does the same thing. And on the second time, he wins. The court will reverse itself. Yes. Like in one breath. We're talking like these bench conferences that we've been mentioning that I just couldn't even like I thought about trying to pick some out for you guys, but it would get really redundant really quick because there's just so much back and forth thing that the, and the court's finding like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, OK. This, I see your this point. It's got a point reversed. I reversed myself. Yep. Never mind. Objection overruled. But so right after the lithium exchange is another exchange that the state latches on too hard in their closing. And Tim and April are going around and around about her transfer to Eastern State Hospital from Parkside in April of 98. And whether April answered no on an intake form that asked her about having a problem with drugs or alcohol. Tim is obviously having a good time at any opportunity he can to ask April about being a liar. And Any inconsistency is a lie, whether or not it's intentional. So he's trying to get her to admit that she lied on the intake form at ESH. Leslie and I are going to act this out because I feel like you need to hear the climax of the exchange. 
This is really bad for April's credibility. In any other context, it would just be a philosophical dialogue about the nature of truth and the perception of reality. But of course, that means dick all when you need to be presenting yourself as a reliable witness who isn't going to lie and manipulate the truth. Do you want to be Tim or do you want to be April? I'll be Tim. Oh, shit. Okay. Okay. So the answer to my question is when you told them no, that question, was that not the truth? Was it? I told the truth as I saw it at the time, sir. Whatever the answer was, it's been a long time. The truth as you saw it at the time? I would have answered as I saw the truth at that time. Describe to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what you mean by that statement. Just what I said. However, I answered the question at the time was what I believed. And if that was incorrect, as it probably was, then so be it. But at the time, I answered. I answered as truthfully as I could. And like I said, I don't recall my answer, but I'm quite sure that they recorded it correctly. Well, the truth doesn't change based on your circumstances, does it? It can change based on your perception. But the truth does not change based on your circumstance, does it? It's still the truth. I suppose. Your perception may change. Exactly. But it doesn't change the truth, does it? Exactly. They have described you in these mental health records as manipulative. Tell us how you the define that. Like I said, I think we all, well, I didn't say this, but I believe we all manipulate on a day-to-day basis in everything we do. So I cannot tell you what they meant by manipulative. Like, I believe we all manipulate. Well, I didn't ask you for their opinion and definition. I asked you for yours. My understanding, being manipulative is one of the characteristics of bipolar. So I don't know. I didn't have enough contact with any healthcare professional to have any kind of assessment whether or not I was manipulative. I didn't see them hardly at all. That's the truth. Ma'am, you've got a bachelor's in science, do you not? Yes, I do. You've got a master's degree, do you not? I have a master's equivalent. You graduated from high school in about two years, did you not? I graduated from high school about two years early, yes. My only question to you is, I want you to tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what your definition of the word manipulative is. Do you understand my question? Yes, I understand your question. Thank you. Okay. What is it? Manipulate in my opinion, means to behave or act in a certain way so as to influence the outcome to benefit or achieve your your agenda. That's my opinion about what manipulate means. Thank you. You're welcome. Admitting that you are manipulative in your day-to-day life or that everyone is manipulative is not a great response, to put it lightly, nor is saying that the truth can change based on your perception. You can honestly almost feel how giddy Tim Harris is during this exchange. April's credibility is critical, and this blows a huge hole in it, and the state latches on. We've mentioned before how April is intelligent, pretty, well-educated, and would otherwise make a very sympathetic defendant. What Tim Harris does with this excerpt from Cross is turn her intelligence and education and even her attractiveness somewhat against her. He wants the jury to see her as a simultaneously calculating femme fatale and an unreliable drug addict with mental health problems. You can see the theme coming through in this testimony. Right. So there's only other, there's only one other thing we need to touch on as far as cross-examination goes. And that's the other half of Tim's theme, which is April being an unreliable drug addict. So we have to talk about this because it overlays everything else and it undercuts her credibility quite a bit. And Tim Harris zeroes in on her drug use and does some very effective cross-examination and that, 
He starts simply testifying through his questioning with little to no objection from April's attorney. And this is what Colleen was talking about at the beginning about like this idea of leading a witness on cross-examination. So like we mentioned, you lead a witness, you're asking a question in a form that puts testimony in the witness's mouth and suggests an answer. So for example, let's take that little bit that maybe you remember from the closing uh, last week about the peanut M&M sized track mark on her arm. Um, Tim says something to the effect of, um, April, isn't it true that you had a track mark on your arm the size of a peanut M&M? Now, this is the first time anybody's heard anything about a peanut M&M. This is, this, is, this is out of nowhere, seemingly. And it doesn't matter how April answers. I mean, she answers no, I think, but it does, actually doesn't matter because she's a confirmed drug user. There's really never been a question about that. She's admitting it to every police officer she interacts with. But now all the jury is thinking about her arms being so fucked up from shooting up that she's got M&M-sized knots in them. Um, And like I said, the drug use is confirmed. It's corroborated. It's in the medical records from Parkside. Syringes are found in April's possession on the day that Officer Officer Tallman has her committed. Um, The drug rig set up in the glasses case is found in her backpack after the shooting. I mean, drugs are everywhere. But April is getting again into a tit for tat here and she's not trying to skirt the issue, but there's a lot of like trying to get the details exactly right of like, well, listen, Tim, I didn't actually use a spoon to shoot up and I didn't do X, Y, or Z with the drugs. And for me, like I started to get into this a moment ago, but like whatever I prepare my client when I was in litigation for a deposition or a cross-examination, it's like these instructions I actually stolen from my father. So if he's listening, dad, that goes out, this goes out (laughs) to you, but like it's two instructions, be honest and be brief. You have to tell the truth but you only have to answer the question that's in front of you and you need to do it as briefly as possible. Yes, no, I don't know, I can't remember. Those four responses really get you through about 95% of every question that's coming at you. And then in my opinion, like everything else, it's like one sentence, 10 words or less. As little information as you can offer up means um, as little opportunity as Tim, you're giving Tim or your opposing counsel, whoever it is, less opportunity to latch onto an inconsistency or to poke a hole in something you've said. So, and I mean, when I was taking depositions or when I was trying cases, it's like, give the witness enough rope so that they hang themselves. Because if you get somebody talking, you're gonna get something that you can latch onto. The more ammunition that goes into the barrel, the more there is to pull from, which is what we heard in Rebecca Nightingale's closing, you know, these questions about what does manipulate mean and what is the truth and can you change the truth? Like, those are traps. It's a trap. It's a fucking trap. (laughs) Every question (laughs) on cross is a trap. And like you said, if she just said yes, no, maybe, I don't remember, I do not recall, um, then then you're not feeding them a barrel full of dynamite for them to use against you later, which is what they will do. Right. Instead of like, and it's coming from such a holistic place in her that I see and feel and relate to, which is, and and we see it come across so many times in this story. If I just tell people what happened, if, if I just explain, it will all be okay because people will understand. And time and time again, from police interactions to parkside interactions to ESH interactions to courtroom interactions, that is proven to be false. Yep. I think if you go back to that exchange we just read, like the very beginning, the first question of of that exchange is, um, 
so the answer to my question is when you told them no to that question, that was not the truth, was it? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Make him ask you another question because that question fucking sucks. Don't answer that question. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're asking me. Yeah, can, I, can you that please? That question doesn't make any sense. What are you, what are you talking about? When? Who? Who is they? Yeah. When that question, that, that was not the truth. I don't know, sir. And then he has to ask you a, a separate question or he has to try to clarify it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you put it, put the ball back in their court, but mm-hmm. it that didn't happen here, right? You know? And I think Tim is effective. He, you know, he gives April enough rope that he gets the job done. I think her credibility is really shot by the time this is over. Yeah, it's hard to say whether the testifying in her own defense really helped her that much. I mean, the thing that's hard about it is like, she's the only one that actually tells us what happened. And the state, like we talked about last time, uses all of the all of the damning details from her testimony to continue to hammer her under the ground, but none of the exonerating details or the forgivable details that she shares, those don't make it in. Yep. Yeah. So one final note on the drug usage before we move on, but it does undercut April's credibility, not just with the jury and not just in the court, but I mean, it undercuts her credibility with her family and the police and the mental health facilities. It does a lot of damage for her ability to get help, for sure. Yes, yes, because a lot of the behavior that Terry was exhibiting towards her, the intimate terrorism, the stalking, the trashing the house, um, the erratic nature of it can also be characterized as addict behavior. So like when Rebecca says, sorry, when Ms. Nightingale says her friend testified that she came to the house earlier in March and her house was trashed then, it begins to lay this groundwork for like, maybe he wasn't breaking in and trashing the house. Maybe she's just a drug addict and her shit is pulled out all over the place because she's on meth. On meth and that's what people on meth do. And it really doesn't help that all of these behaviors with the broken house and the broken door frames and the chaotic behavior is also doubly explained by people who use a lot of meth. Yeah, that, and that's the thing that fucking sucks. Like you take like Officer Tallman's response in particular, right? His like totally waving her off kind of attitude when he is responding kind of pretty frequently to calls from her house. Um, it's like in isolation, the behaviors that April was exhibiting, again, like we talked about with Bennett a few weeks ago. I don't know. I would like to fault them. I want to fault them because I'm angry because they're there. They're supposed to be there to help. And they're supposed to be like better at identifying someone in crisis and someone who's having a problem with an abuser. And it just, they're not. But it's hard to it's hard to continue to fault him when you take it you, you kind of step back and look globally at, at all the different behaviors. Right, and how often they're responding to meth based calls at at this time in 1998 in Oklahoma. Yeah, and even today, um, if you didn't have the external corroboration, if you didn't have Glenda McCarley witnessing the things that she witnessed, or Bruce McLaughlin witnessing what he witnessed, Steve Hatchett. Officer DeWitt, if you didn't have the same examinations from Kathy Bell and from Karen Morgan, or Dr. Tedder 
and Dr. Schecht, who both examine her after abusive incidents and, and corroborate physical injuries. If you didn't have all that external corroboration, I mean, I'll be straight up with you. I would be like, I don't know, man. I don't know if we can take this story from this person and, no. and, and say we're going to put up a fight about it. It's those things that you just mentioned that caught my eye to continue in getting into this case because I see I see stories like this all the time. And every time I look into it or go a little bit deeper, I find that there is no external corroboration or the external corroboration actually goes against what the person told me. Or I find that they've already been being dishonest within the first like couple of messages with me. And I can't follow through with that. Like I only have so much time and I need to be devoting time to a just cause. And so the fact that, yes, there is all of these other things that like, yes, there was meth usage, but at the same time, there's all of this. Yeah. That makes it almost like it just doesn't seem like other people took the same other people within the system took the same second look. Yeah, there was no holistic look at the situation. And when you have that, I mean, you have the physical evidence, you have the protective orders, you have even Claire Egan provides an affidavit that corroborates that she observed physical injuries following Rome, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like this woman's a federal judge now. She wasn't then, but she was still a, a respected attorney. And the tape, the fucking tape, like there's all this evidence, right? Mm-hmm. And But all of that turns out to mean nothing to the police and the criminal justice system because April was using meth. Yep. And so yes. Tim, I mean, he has a fucking field day, right? On cross, turning her into a paranoid, delusional, homicidal drug addict who's suffering from bipolar and psychosis, but is also incredibly manipulative. Yep. Tale as old as time. <laughs> That's right. Tale as old as and fucking time. everyone seems to be taking the bait for that, except for nurse Betty Cantrell. Badass Betty. I would like to talk to her. I really would. <laughs> See if we can find her. Just a reminder that April today is not on any psychotropic drugs for suffering from any bipolar or borderline personality disorder diagnoses. And these are not conditions that just come and go. However, both the symptoms of someone strung out on meth and a bipolar person in a manic state are extremely hard to distinguish from an individual who has been prescribed lithium when they are contraindicated to it. Lithium can cause a person who does not need it to develop dysphoric mood disorder, which looks a lot like psychosis or bipolar mania, or even signs of abusing methamphetamine. The overlap in the symptoms is wide ranging. Yeah, right. It's a reminder. We've talked about this a little bit. Lithium is what April was prescribed at Parkside and that, and she's contraindicated to it, causes her to act out because she doesn't need it. So what a fucking team the police and the mental health response professionals were for her. I mean, I guess summarize cross-examination, it's brutal. Any final thoughts from you? No, I think, no. Brutal. So we don't have time to get into every single witness that testified on behalf of April, but we do want to highlight the witnesses who were actually, um, actually saw Terry's behavior on various occasions and what the two SANE nurses found during their separate examinations in December of 1997 and April of 1998. Of course, April's neighbors, Glenda McCarley and Maxine Calico, testify on her behalf. Glenda witnessed Aaron Tallman disregard April's report of Terry stalking her and the prowling that was ongoing at her house. Both women actually heard and saw Terry speeding away from April's home four to five nights a week. 
uh, during the late winter and early spring, that would be late winter of 1997 and early spring of 1998. Calico testified that she would see his silhouette around April's house and then hear his very distinctive, accurate NSX peeling away. Glenda testifies to having seen Terry drag April back inside her by her hair um, on an occasion when she tried to flee a loud altercation. Yeah, I think in both of them, just tidbits that I'm remembering as you're reading or as you're talking about this um, is they both testify that they like the the loudness of the fights would wake them up, his car and them just screaming at each other. The The court is kind of like, I think it's, I think it's Maxine Calico. She's the really older lady, right? Yeah. So the court is kind of like frustrated with her because they seem they seem to think that she's like too old to remember what happened. And actually Tim goes up and asks for a bench conference and says, I don't want to embarrass this elderly witness. Um, something, something, something. Like she's testifying that she can't remember. Because I think at one point she starts to talk about something and then she interjects like, I don't remember if it was X or Y. Like she's starting to say, I don't remember X or Y. And then he's like, oh, bench conference. She's saying she doesn't remember. So. Yeah, and I don't want to embarrass her by cross-examining her too harshly or whatever. So, but then they get once they get back, he asks her again, like, well, how would you know it would be at 3 a.m.? And she's like, because it woke me up out of bed and I know the sound and I was on my porch several times when she came over and used the phone. And I like, she's very clear, like this happened. It happened all the time. And it was a joke in the neighborhood how often they, they didn't do anything. How, yeah, how little the police responded. And I, one person that I don't think I actually um, included in our list is um, um, Mr. Hughes, who's Glenda McCarley's husband. So they have different last names, but he, he gets up there and he testifies. I don't know if you remember this Colleen, but he testifies about the one time that he met Terry was he observed Terry breaking into April's house. And like, um, so it's like a rainy day in January. It's early in the morning and he's outside. It's like 5, 5.30 in the morning. He's outside in his driveway doing whatever. And he sees Terry like pulling back at her gate that leads back to the backyard where those French doors are mm -hmm. that he was breaking in all the time. And he actually calls out to him. He's like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? And Terry Carlton's response, is, as Mr. Hughes testifies, is like, do you know who I am? Oh, wow. Don't worry about it. Classic. You know what I mean? But it's just Terry being like, do you know who I am? Don't worry about I'm this. I'm supposed I'm, to be here. I'm supposed to be here. And he's like, that's his attitude with everybody, and he gets away with mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. you know? So anyway, I just want to interject that one guy that wasn't on our list to talk about. But um, yeah, the, the two neighbors who see these altercations and Glenda seeing the hair thing really... That's gnarly stuff. For real. Um, then we have the nursing team at Eastern State. So we, Betty Cantrell, everyone's uh, favorite. So she believed that April was in fear of her life, right? And not par paranoid or delusional. Um, you go back to episode three, you can hear her testimony. But there's two other nurses from Eastern State who testify as well. And they testify about him incessantly. In five days, he's there three times. One time he's there in two times in one day. So... One of the nurses describes the visit that she witnesses causing April to become like timid and agitated and scared. And uh, the other nurse describes the separate visit where Terry suddenly is like, he jumps up from, a, from being seated with April to screaming and yelling and jumping up and down and causing April to back away from him. It's weird though, because she also testifies that he didn't seem aggressive toward her. <laughs> so I don't really understand what her view of aggression was. Maybe she's just seen some shit, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but she at least kind of gets in this idea that he had an unpredictable temper. For sure. And the fact that he was clearly agitated when he went and visited her and the impact that that had on her. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, Doctor uh, Officer DeWitt also testifies, right? He confirms a detail that I don't think we've mentioned yet. Have we, Colleen, this idea, this detail that um, April was had begun wearing a panic button around her neck so that she could trigger her home alarm system and have a police response. And so he actually observed that and, and he, he gets that in uh, for April. Hence the name of our podcast. Panic button. Um, and then there's... Uh, I don't, I'd like to hear what you think about this, Colleen. The... the, the Choice to call Sherry Blanton, um, Terry's ex-wife, because she's extremely hostile to the idea of testifying. Yeah, it seems to me like, so she's Terry's ex-wife and she had filed a protective order on him alleging that he had tried to choke her or strangle her. This was in like the 80s, way before um, any of the stuff that we've been talking about. But still, because we get battered women's syndrome into the court um, proceedings, we get to sort of examine any of the prior victims or the, if this was a pattern. And clearly it was a pattern. So they call Sherry Blanton. And I get the, in, I get the impression from the testimony in the bench conferences that Chris Lyons called Sherry and spoke to her on the phone and was like, hey, this happened to you. You're pretty ups- you were pretty upset about it. Are you willing to testify about those things? And she told him on the phone, yeah, sure, you know, like he strangled me. It was pretty bad. And then when she gets there and sees the Carltons are there in the courtroom and possibly they intimidated her in some way. I don't know that. That's just conjecture. But when she gets up there, she has completely lost her nerve about testifying about this. And she basically says, we would beat each other up. I would leave the house sometimes. He would leave the house sometimes. It was mutual. And um, I don't know what you're talking about, sir. Yeah, it's like she really downplays the abuse and um, describes it as mutually combative. And I think, I mean, I don't know why he chose to call her, but I think maybe he was trying to get the protective order in. Mm-hmm. But I, I actually think he could have gotten it in through April because April received it in the mail. The way I, here's how I would have gotten it in. Okay, here's how I would have tried anyway. I, Tim Harris would have been shitting the bed and <laughs> come after me with a knife afterward. But what I would have done is exactly what he fucking did with Dr. Call, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I would have been like, April, did you receive a protective order in the mail? And she does some of that. Like, yeah, I received a protective order. in the. Well, what did this alert you to about Terry's behavior? Well, it alerted me to X, Y, and Z. Objection. Did, Ter- did Terry strangle his wife in 1987, April? Yeah. Did you learn Objection. that? Objection. Objection. Did you learn that Terry had a history of strangling his intimate partners? I did. Was that written in the protective order? It was. And like he's going to be objecting. Oh, oh sure. The but I'm going to fucking do it until the well, court tells me does. to move on. I know. I know. And that's like, I don't know. That's how I would have done it. Even if I couldn't get the exhibit in, I would have done exactly what he did with Dr. Call on the that other bullshit that we're going to get to. So anyway, Sherry Blanton testifies and it's, it's not super helpful, I don't think. And then finally, uh, uh, before I shut up for a minute, is um, <laughs> the two... The two sane nurses, Kathy Bell and Karen Morgan, right, they each independently confirm vaginal tearing, bruising, and redness after both the December 97 and the April 98 rapes. And so, like we talked about during the state's cases, that sane nurses don't make a finding of whether a person's been raped or not, but they gather this evidence, and this physical evidence tends to corroborate forcible sex, right? And the state's going to do the classic misogynist thing, call it consensual rough sex, 
Um, per use, gotta love a classic slut trope. Unless they're prosecuting the rape and then they're gonna use all of the evidence from the same kit to substantiate the fact that forcible sex occurred and that their assailant did those horrible things to that person. Yeah. And it always, I think, is more effective when you get the slut trope from a woman, uh, which, which again, we talked about the state using, you know, having Rebecca Brett Nightingale there is the number two on the case. You know, it's really more effective. It's not a slut trope if it comes from a woman, right? Right. So... Women can't call other women sluts. Never happens. Never. So then there's Dr. Brent Laughlin. Dr. Laughlin, we've talked about a couple of times. He lived across the street from Terry. Um, He gets called to the stand to testify about an incident that happens in the morning of May 1997. Um, He was in his driveway about to head to work, and he heard a commotion across the street, a crashing sound. He was looking over to see April's car trying to back out of Terry's driveway. He sees Terry halfway in the driver's side window and his legs are hanging out. Laughlin testifies to crossing the street and Terry going inside his house after seeing Laughlin coming. So Terry kind of like gets out of the driver's side of the car and runs inside. Then Terry starts to shout at April from the front door, telling her to come inside, which the door is still kind of cracked slightly open. And Terry wanted April to come inside and talk to him. And he had taken April's car key. So that's what he was doing when he was halfway sticking out of the car. He's reaching in around the the steering wheel and pulling out the key and taking it inside with him. So she can't leave. She's just stuck in her car. Laughlin testifies that he checked on April and she was bleeding. Her arms were bleeding. Um, Laughlin went to Terry and tried to calm him down. Eventually, he gets Terry to toss April's keys out of the door. The incident precipitates another incident we discussed during the state's case episode and testified to by Terry's friend, Robert Martin. The incident where April drives to Dallas and arrives at Robert Martin's home in the middle of the night, demanding to see Terry. That story doesn't make April look very rational, but you'll remember Robert Martin testified that April was somewhat belligerently telling Terry that he was not going to do this to her. If you remember, Martin's story is that Terry said he had broken it off with April and she was a crazy bitch, right? Just another fucking classic crazy (laughs) ex-girlfriend trope. Martin is, of course, not discerning enough or interested in questioning his friend's conduct. The incident witnessed by Dr. Laughlin apparently caused Terry to get out of town for a while to visit his friend in Dallas. While there, Terry starts shopping around this story that April's crazy and she's breaking into his house and she's irrational and dangerous. In reality, April had a key, and the reason she was at Terry's that morning was to try to get the nude photos of herself that Terry had taken and was using to blackmail her. It's then that she discovers the syringes in the basement, and she discovers that Terry is using IV drugs. She steals the syringes and as many photos as she can gather with the intent to try to get to the Carlton family and tell them that Terry needs help and he needs to go to substance use treatment, and she wants to protect herself from any further blackmail opportunities with this revenge porn. All of this precipitates the chaotic summer of 1997 that we covered in episode two. Remember, it isn't until August 97 that April uses IV drugs, particularly meth, for the first time. Yeah, so this whole thing fucking sucks. So you take a step back, you can see just how manipulative the Terry had been throughout their whole relationship. 
And you can also see how easy our society made it for him to get away with it. It's fucking enraging. I mean, he's never questioned by anyone. He's believed. His default is just a dude trying to get away from a crazy ex-girlfriend. Like, and I think his money makes it easier for him to get away with this. I don't know. Like, it sucks. And then April just winds up playing into the fucking trope. It sucks. She, she like, the, we keep talking about the box is getting smaller, right? Like, she panics. She's upset about the blackmail. She's upset about the threat against her son. So she drives to Dallas late at night, gets there in the early morning, and is like, you're not going to do this to me. Yeah, by the time she gets there, like, especially when you are pissed off about something and you have five hours by yourself to think about what you're going to do and say to that person when you get there. Like, you're not super rational by that point when you arrive. You're, like, flaming already. And, you know, especially because there were witnesses in the house and Robert was there and everybody sees her act crazy it's like, it's nothing compared to the number of times we have people corroborating that Terry was acting insane, but like one is equivalent to his 10 of her. So her acting crazy one time is an equivalent to him acting crazy 10 times. Yeah. And it's not even fucking, to me, it's not even crazy if you know the context in which it's occurring. Yep. And right? You ask. Like, it's absolutely crazy to kidnap somebody and hold them hostage for three days at gunpoint and rape them. That's fucking crazy. Don't do that. Also, it like, is, 17 felonies. <laughs> it's, but it's not crazy. Seven, at least 17. <laughs> it is not crazy to be like, oh, you're going to show the revenge porn you took of me to my husband and try to get my son taken away from me? No, I will drive all night and I will confront you about it. Yeah. You won't get away with it. And you won't do this to me. No, you're not going to do this to me. I mean, like, the so I'm crazy because of that? It's early on and we can see him already starting to use Hunter as a tool for manipulation and bargaining. Like, yeah. okay, if you stay with me and um, don't, you know, and you start using drugs with me, then I guess I won't try to get your son taken away. Come live with me and I won't. I won't threaten your son. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, so I don't know. That incident just makes me so upset. It doesn't look good. Yeah. So uh, we, we switch gears now to talk about the motions in Lemony. Yeah. Yeah. So there were a couple of motions in Lemony. And let's just explain. If you are an attorney in a case and there's and you look at the discovery, which means everything that, that could possibly come in. It's not everything that will come in, but it could. And you see something that could be particularly damaging to your case, you're going to file what's called a motion in limine, and you're going to request that the court keep that evidence out of the trial, keep it from getting heard by the jury. And they will often make these rulings ahead of trial so they don't have to have these arguments that last hours and hours um, in the middle of the trial where you're like keeping the jury out of the room and it just drags everything down. So like months in advance, um, attorneys for both sides will be filing motions in limine and asking for certain pieces of evidence to come out. And one, and there are two pieces that we want to talk about that got limited out um, in this case. Okay, so we played about a seven-minute um, recording in episode two of an argument that Terry and April had um, after returning from Rome, in which he, he admits to um, raping her and fighting with her physically, abusing her. And then he tells her that, oh, I only started choking you because you were resisting. Uh, pretty damaging, pretty damning tape. Um, and I don't see any reason why that wouldn't come in here, except for, yeah, pretty prejudicial to the state's case. And there is a motion in limine from the state to keep that out. And it is ruled on. And they the judge does rule to keep it out. 
Yeah, he grants the motion in limine, but like there's two things I think I want to highlight about this whole process. One is like the substantive law piece that gets argued. And so like the way that the state argues it is that the tape couldn't be um, corroborated. And that's like a major piece of, of the like reasoning that they rely on. Oh yeah, on. they say it's unreliable. Except that um, we have the affidavit of Claire Egan where she talks about the recording and having heard it and having been wanting it to get the protective order. And April can authenticate the voice. Is that Terry? Yes. That it's is Terry. obviously been doctored. Right, right. And there are, I mean, like, I don't know. I couldn't hear too many doctored pieces, but I do, like, I don't, I, like, we don't have the full call, obviously. We just have, we pick it up mid-conversation. Right. But, you know, they're successful at this, which I think is, Claire Egan should have been in that room or that affidavit should have been presented to rebut the motion that like she needed it, wanted it. It's the tape that they were using. Or Mike Nance, the detective who received it. Where Where is he? Yeah. What was he doing? Yeah. April can authenticate the voices. It, like, yeah. uh, you know, there's just like, there. it just isn't very strong reasoning. But the other fucking piece, Colleen, I don't know if you remember this, is that this is happening mid-trial. And the reason why I think this is important that it's happening mid-trial is that there's a fucking court reporter sitting there taking down every word. And they do the hearing on this motion in limine off the record. They don't make a record of it. It's It's, April 16th that they file it. That's the day that the defense is going to get up and do their case. It's not... (laughs) It's not like you can say, well, we don't have the reporter here today because we're about to do the defense's case. She's there. And they, like, opt to go off the record and do the motion in limine. So we don't have any idea what the court found compelling about that. So I'm just annoyed by that because <sighs> that piece of evidence is really important and the jury had never heard it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That is frustrating. And then the other piece of evidence that gets kept out is, and I do think this went into discovery in Lyons' discovery that he was going to introduce evidence of um, Anastasia both Fugan and Justin Bruton's murder-suicide type thing that we talk about. Uh, They were going to introduce it not for the evidence or the facts of what happens in the case with, with Anastasia and Justin, but for the impact that this murder of Anastasia had on April's state of mind. Because in October of 97, when all of this is going on and Anastasia is killed... Terry tells April, that bitch had it coming and you're next. And to have someone actually get killed and then have the other person tell you that bitch had it coming and you're next gives a certain level of gravity and validity to your fear of reasonable death. Yeah. Was it reasonable that you thought you might die? Well, there's been a death. Well, someone was killed and the person who was going to kill me said I was next. Um... Pretty, 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 pretty credible um, evidence that goes to her state of mind. I do realize, and judges really hate this, when you introduce a whole line of like rabbit hole that defense attorneys love to introduce confusion and rabbit holes like that. And I do think that the jury would have been like, what? I want to learn more about that. (laughs) Um, And it would have been hard to just say, like, there was a murder and then a suicide. And don't ask anything about that. This is what we want you to know about that. And the state is effective at 
motioning in limine and getting that kept out by saying that the only reason Lyons wants to introduce it is to, to besmirch the Carlton's reputation. Um, I just think there's a much stronger argument on defense side for keeping that in uh, because the whole question is her state of mind. I, I really have a hard time with that. It's not more yeah. prejudicial than probative. I know because he didn't murder. He didn't murder her. No. And there's no, there's not even um, anything really that you would put in the record to say that Justin Bruton murdered no. her. It's just a, it's a suggestion. Well, it's really like, didn't, you don't even have to talk about Justin's suicide. You could just simply talk about Anastasia being murdered and the fact that it was his nephew's girlfriend. Mm hmm. And that's it. You could limit it. Sure. Yeah. Like limit it to those facts. Limit it however you want to. Yeah. Um, there was literally no opportunity to get, even have that discussion because it was like, this is irrelevant. Yeah. Um, it's staying out. It's so not, though. Her state of, like you were saying, her state of mind. It's the only relevant piece of information for this entire thing. So this episode has really hit the highlights of the vast majority of the defense's case. Next week, we're going to discuss the defense's battered women's syndrome expert, Dr. John Call, and take a look at the elements necessary for April to establish her defense of battered women's syndrome self-defense. We'll see you next week. Panic Button is a co-production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and Leslie Briggs. We're your hosts, Colleen McCarty, and Leslie Briggs. Our theme music is Velvet Rope by Guillaume. The production team is Leslie Briggs and Rusty Rowe. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studio in Tulsa. Special thanks to Lynn Worley, Amanda Ross, and Ashlyn Faulkner for their work on this case. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, use a safe computer and contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at thehotline.org or call one 800 799-7233. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and a recommendation. Follow us at OK underscore Appleseed across all social platforms. You can subscribe right now on the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then click the subscribe button. If you want to continue the conversation with other listeners, please join our panic button.